great God, to you we give praise and honor. To you, O Father, we give thanks for your kindness that has led us to repentance. To you, King Jesus, we give you thanks for clothing us in your righteousness. And to you, O Spirit, we give you thanks for awakening in us life, that we may taste and see that the Lord is good. O great God, would you awaken us afresh this morning? Would you give us eyes, ears, and hearts to receive your word for us? We are needy people. We are hungry to hear from you. So, O God, we pray that you would speak to us this morning from the provision of your word, and that you would make us, again, renewed to follow this wonderful Savior, your Son, the precious Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. It is a great honor to preach here today in Josh's absence. Uh, so thank you, Josh, and thank you to the elders for the great opportunity to be here yet again, uh, to have the opportunity to preach to you, my church family. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't like what, what you hear, just come back next week and you'll hear the real guy, okay? But uh, it's good to have you here if you're visiting with us. If you haven't been to Trinity lately or if you've never been here before, you should know that each week our pastor, Pastor Josh Vincent, is opening up for us the Gospel of Mark on a verse-by-verse basis. We've just begun this series of messages through the Gospel of Mark in which he is entitled, The Amazing True Story of Jesus. This morning, the title of my message is, Jesus Teaches with Authority. And as you just heard our brother John read, it's quite clear where that title comes from. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know that Mark, in this gospel, has been drawing the curtain back on the person and the work of Jesus. He's been acknowledging for us several things. In the first seven verses, for example, we are told that John the Baptist has prepared the way through his preaching. We are told in verses 9 through 13 that Jesus was baptized and that he experienced great temptation in the wilderness from Satan. And Mark wants us to recognize that Jesus was a man of mission. Jesus was not an aimless wanderer among the first century Palestine landscape. He was a man on a mission. He is not aimless, but he is intentional. Everything he does is calculated. He doesn't waste his days. He doesn't waste his words. And Mark does not want you and I to be sidetracked to all of the drama that is going on in this text. Mark is narrating for us this shocking announcement about Jesus, this King who has come. And this announcement is quite clear for us as we read through this Gospel. The King, Jesus, has come. And this new kingdom has come to separate the darkness with light. This king has come to usher in a kingdom message. And this sovereign king has come to destroy the kingdom of our world. And Mark is calling upon you and I to pay attention to this drama. In our text this morning, the preceding verses tell us that Jesus has gathered to himself some disciples These mere mortals are there to uncover and see all that Jesus is going to do 
in front of them so that they will be later witnesses of him. This is how Mark receives these words. It is in our text this morning that the real ministry, at least from Mark's perspective, begins. At this point in our journey through Mark, we are about to start being introduced to healings, to miracles, to a little bit more substance to what Jesus is going to do. And it is in this text that we have an exorcism performed in a synagogue. When Josh called me a few months back and asked me if I would preach in his absence, I think I was driving down the road. I said, sure, I'll preach. And he said, well, I'll be preaching through the gospel of Mark, so you'll just have one of those texts, whichever one's next. I said, absolutely, happy to do it. He never told me that it was the exorcism. He never, told, he never conveniently let me know that this is the text he was giving me to preach. But I have good news. There are three more exorcisms in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark chapter 5, in Mark chapter 7, in Mark chapter 9, we have even more. So if Josh calls you while we're going through those series of chapters, don't answer the call. You have my permission to ignore what your pastor is calling you about. Notice even in our own text in chapter 1 how demons are very present. Look down in verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So Jesus' interaction with demons isn't that shocking from the perspective of the gospel writer. It's a continual reality in his life and ministry. In verse 13 of this chapter, which we've already seen through Josh's preaching, Jesus has already encountered Satan himself in the wilderness. So Jesus is very aware of his sworn enemy and he is engaging the enemy's minions as he seeks to do his ministry here on planet earth. So if you're a note taker and you like to take notes, here would be the big idea of our text this morning. Jesus not only proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom of God, But in his ministry, he manifested its arrival by plundering the kingdom of Satan by his authority and by his deeds. I know that's sort of a long statement. I'll say it one more time. The the main idea in this text is that Jesus not only proclaimed the arrival of the kingdom, but in his ministry, he manifested its arrival by plundering the kingdom of Satan by his authority and by his deeds. Our approach to this text this morning is really simple. Let's just basically look at this text from three angles by asking it three different questions. The first question I want us to ask this morning is, what did Jesus do? The second question we'll ask this morning is, how did people react to what Jesus did? And the third question is, what's the big deal for us? Or how can you and I apply this text to our lives. So simple questions. What did he do? What were the reactions to what he did? And how do we apply this to our lives? So first of all, church, let's notice what Jesus did. In our text this morning, we find Jesus in a very small but important fishing village 
which served as the basis for his operation in his Galilean ministry. This town was located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and calling it a sea is sort of generous on our part. It's really just a large freshwater lake. It is seven miles wide, it's 13 miles long, it's teeming with fish, and Jesus is there in that area frequently. It is Capernaum means village of Nahum, and Mark tells us that he's drawing our attention in to see our Savior at work. This was a significant town. It was a border town. A lot of people passed through this town. The inhabitants of this town would have been Jews, Gentiles, Roman soldiers, and various officials. It was a perfect town for our Savior to do His work. Perhaps one reason scholars will say that Jesus liked working here is because two of the people that He worked through and with Peter and Andrew were from this region. Or perhaps another reason is because he was rejected at Nazareth. If you'll recall in Luke chapter 4, we have the parallel passage of our text this morning. And what Luke tells us is just before this event happens, Jesus is in Nazareth. And we know that Nazareth is some 1,300 feet above sea level, and Capernaum is some 700 feet below sea level, and Jesus is in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. We are told he pulls out the scroll of Isaiah. He reads Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. He tells the people that this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing today, and eventually they want to throw him off of a cliff. And so he, the Bible actually tells us in Luke 4 that Jesus goes down from Nazareth into Capernaum, and that's where our text happens today. So what does Jesus do in this text? Well, he does a number of things. Let's just mention two. Jesus, first of all, enters the synagogue, and he begins teaching. He enters the synagogue and he begins teaching. Notice in verse 21, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. For purposes of simplification for our 21st century minds, it would be analogous to consider this synagogue like a local church building in our own day. Certainly there are differences, but if you want to sort of wrap your mind around what this might look like. The synagogue was an assembly hall. It was an auditorium where the scriptures, particularly the Torah, the law, were read and taught. There was only one temple, and that was in Jerusalem, but synagogues were scattered all throughout the region, wherever 10 or more Jewish boys, 13 years of age and older, would have lived. So synagogues were important meeting places. They were there, they were places for worship, for education, for community gatherings. Commentaries usually suggest that synagogues began sometime after the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. Sometime after that experience, temples, pardon me, synagogues began to emerge in the area. And having arrived there on the Sabbath, we are told that Jesus began to teach. Luke, in his account of this, in Luke 4, verse 16, says this was his custom. That's the only thing Luke really adds to this, is that this was something that was customarily routine in Jesus' ministry, to go into the synagogue and now to teach. 
In his helpful commentary on the Gospel of Mark, scholar Mark Strauss details for us what a typical Jewish synagogue service would have looked like. Their order of worship, so to speak, would have been this. First of all, they would have begun with prayers and readings from the law and prophets. Secondly, while maybe not in all, but in some, there would have been an Aramaic translation of the scripture that would have been read. Following this, there would have been a homily or a sermon or some type of proclamation of the text that had been read. And then there would be a closing benediction. It is very likely that after the reading of the Law and Prophets, Jesus' opportunity to preach manifested itself. The fact that he was even invited to preach suggests to us that he already had an established reputation as a teacher, as a preacher, as someone worthy to be listened to. And he's given this opportunity, and of course he takes it. We know that throughout Mark's gospel, Mark keys us in on Jesus' teaching ministry. Fifteen different times, Mark tells us that Jesus taught. He calls Jesus a teacher twelve times. Mark does not give us a lot of content to what Jesus had to say. But that's okay. Because we already know in Mark chapter 1, the verses we've already seen, that Jesus has pretty much summed up his message for us. If you have your Bible open, look in verses 14 and 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That is what our Savior is preaching. It is this kingdom message that is bringing light into darkness where everything in our story changes. Mark doesn't have to tell us Jesus' introduction, how he applied the text, any homiletical skills he may have had. We know that Jesus is preaching kingdom messages. And he's preaching this kingdom message. Whatever he said that day startled the crowd, as we'll see in a few moments. But what we first need to see now is that Jesus begins teaching. So what did he do? Jesus entered into a synagogue, a place of worship, and he began teaching. What was the second thing Jesus did? Jesus rebuked and expelled a demon. Jesus rebuked and expelled a demon. Notice in verse 23, and immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. I have the great privilege, as Dan mentioned a moment ago, of of teaching at GCU. It's It's awesome to be gainfully employed. It's even better to get paid to teach people about Jesus. Even when they do turn in long papers that I get tired of grading. I have the privilege of teaching at GCU. And on the undergraduate level, I mainly teach one class. On the graduate level, I I teach several classes, but on the undergraduate level, I teach Christian worldview, which basically is sort of a summary of Christianity from a historical, biblical, theological, philosophical, and an apologetics perspective. 
This class is mandated for every student to take, so more than likely, in every time that class is provided and is being taken by students, there are going to be, and it's always the case for me, a few non-Christians in the class. I expect it. In fact, I sort of strategize the way I like to teach certain things within the class toward those skeptics and or non-Christians. And in my interactions with students, before class, during class, coffee after class, I often hear what C.S. Lewis said is a terrible thing to say, right? Jesus is a great teacher, Dr. McClendon. I'll give you that. He really is a great, great teacher. In fact, this week I had a remarkable statement by one student. I think Jesus' teachings were awesome. I just don't think he ever existed. So therefore, I don't have to believe in him. I'm sorry, son, you are wrong. That was my response. Sorry, son, you're wrong. Let's talk about this. I often hear statements like this, that Jesus is a great teacher. And you don't want to know something, folks. He absolutely was, but that is not why he is on the scene. He is not trying to impress people with his pedagogical skills. Jesus has something much more heavy in mind. Jesus wants you to see something that is true. He is a man of authority. He is a man of authority. So if you are here today, and you would say to yourself, Jesus was a great moral teacher, yes, we rejoice in that, but we plead with you to see that he's so much more. He's so much more than just a great moral teacher. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the Son of God, and he presents himself that way in a synagogue when this scene happens. So in verse 25, we have what he did. We see that Jesus commands the Spirit, be silent. Interestingly, I didn't know this, these are the exact same words that Jesus will use in Mark 4 when he's talking to the sea. Be still in Mark 4 verse 39. The demon tried one last attack, if you will, but then he had to submit to the authority of the one in the room, the one he knew, by the way, and he had to come out of him. Dear friends, the good news of Jesus' kingdom is lethal news to the kingdom of Satan. The good news of King Jesus is that he will utterly destroy the works of darkness. And this guy, this demon, knew it. Jesus tells him to come out of him. He commands him to come out of him. Notice, there's no spell, no incantation. He doesn't mix potions. He doesn't break out in chants or cast spells. He doesn't ask you to send him $29.99 a month and sow seeds into his ministry and get get on his mailing list. He simply speaks it and commands it, and it happens. Let us see the spiritual warfare that is going on in this text. To borrow from John 3, John says that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. In other words, this demon can't be silent. He is being attacked by the presence of a holy, sovereign Savior. He can't help but react because in his darkness, light has come. Nothing could have kept this demon from reacting to Jesus other than Jesus himself who told him to be quiet. Which leads to some of the reactions in our text. Let's look at these. We saw what Jesus did. Now let's see how everyone reacted to what he did. There is a stark difference, isn't there, between the reaction of the people and the reaction of the demon. His authority, we are told, amazed them. It amazed. It was astonishing to them. That is indicated in verse 22 and again in verse 27. The people were amazed, Mark tells us. On the other hand, the demons were terrified. The people were amazed. The demons were terrified. The people were in awe. The demons were in fear. What is the difference in these two interactions or these two reactions to what Jesus is doing? Here it is. They knew who he was. That is the demons. The people didn't. The demons knew who he was. The people didn't. No wonder the demons are in fear. As Mark's gospel begins, it is clear that people are trying to figure out who is this Jesus guy? Who is this man? So they're listening to him. They're watching him. They're following him. They're asking things of him. What is perfectly clear is that the demons at all times are not having to gain knowledge of who he is. They simply know it. So we first have the reaction of the people. Look at verse 22. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. There had never been a Sabbath day quite like this one in this congregation. They had left their homes, we can presume, thinking that they might just go through a routine service at the local synagogue. Perhaps what you may have thought on your way here this morning Not in some sort of negative way or some unrealistic way, but you just came to church this morning. That's what they were doing. They just went to the synagogue. We find this same sort of response to Jesus' teaching. When you get, when you finally get to the bottom of the Sermon on the Mount, what is the reaction? We are told in Matthew 7, verse 29, he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And they are blown away by this. The word usually translated scribes in our text is found 21 times in Mark's gospel. It's regularly translated teachers of the law if you have the NIV translation. Scribes in most of the other translations. Who were these people? Well, they were experts. They were knowledgeable men who interpreted and applied the Jewish religious law. The office of scribe was a profession. It's what people did for a living. Many Pharisees were scribes, but not all scribes were Pharisees. Other times we have scribes and Pharisees in the same scene. 
Sometimes we just have scribes or sometimes just exclusively Pharisees. But one commonality between them all is that Jesus condemned the whole lot of them. He condemned every one of them. The customary practice of the day was for a scribe in a synagogue service to teach. And he would base his teaching on the famous beliefs or the known beliefs of other rabbis. And thus the authority of the scribes preaching was on human, humanity, on another human speaker. This was the way of their teaching. In a very real sense, as one scholar said, the scribes were in bondage to quotation marks. They simply just quoted what other people had said, so their authority was essentially only horizontal. And for 30 years, Jesus listened to this type of teaching. But on this day, they are astonished because he deconstructs their idea of proclamation. The reason for their astonishment was that Jesus taught on the basis of his own authority, not by citing some rogue scholar or some famous preacher. When Jesus began to teach at the town of Capernaum, In the synagogue, it was different. It was new. It was shocking. It was authoritative. And they are amazed by this. Jesus had originality before it was cool to be original. He did not shelter his opinions behind the cloak of someone else's name. He never based his appeals on the fact that some group of people said something and so therefore it's okay. He didn't slip into the silly categories we often give preachers today who share their messages with us. Jesus didn't share anything. He declared to them, his kingdom has come. He is proclaiming to them a new kingdom message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So they are amazed by his authority, by his privilege, by his prerogative, by his power. He spoke with conviction. He spoke with objectivity. He spoke with authority, dominion. He was in charge. There are a number of New Testament words that can describe or are used to describe amazement or astonishment. This is the strongest of all of those words. One lexicon defined it this way, to strike a person out of his senses by strong feeling. In our vernacular, we would say they were blown away at the words of Jesus. But that's not the only reaction in this text, is it? Notice the reaction of the demon. Look at verse 23. And immediately there was in their midst... Or in their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. If you have your Bibles open, I want you to see how the demons often refer to who Jesus is. So if you'll flip over to chapter 3, look in chapter 3, verse 11. We'll eventually get to this text, but look in Mark 3, verse 11. We are told whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, you are the son of God. Go two more chapters. Look in chapter five. 
And notice how they react to him there. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice. He said, what have you to do with me? Jesus, son of the most high God. I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Folks, these are just some of the texts where we have the demons responding to the person of Jesus and acknowledging who he is. And if this isn't good enough for you, in James chapter 2, verse 19, you believe that God is one? You do well, even the demons believe and shudder. There is this acknowledgement by the demon of who Jesus is. Jesus says, or we are told in verse 26, that his response is he convulsed, number one. Number two, he cried out. Number three, he came out. What terrified this demon so much? What is it that has him so terrified? In one word, you could say it this way, truth. Truth has him terrified. He says to Jesus a few things. He asks Jesus two questions, and he makes one statement. He asks Jesus two questions, and then he makes one statement. He says, first of all, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Second question, have you come to destroy us? Here comes the statement. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon, in a sense, recognizes Jesus' humanity and his deity. He refers to his humanity in the sense that he questions, or pardon me, he states where Jesus is from. Jesus is not just some fairy tale. He's a historical person from a historical town, and the demon knows it. He knows who this man is. He also acknowledges Jesus' divinity. Several commentators, I found this interesting, maybe you will. Several commentators mention the fact that this statement that he gives, the demon gives to Jesus, you are the Holy One of God, is only used one other time in the Bible, and it's in reference to Samson. And scholars, are when they comment on this, talk about how God used Samson to destroy the evil powers of his day. And this was a great anticipation of the great one, Jesus, the Holy One of God, who would essentially destroy all evil for all times through his kingdom. Whatever we can say about this statement, it is clear that the demon realizes the deity of our Lord. His reaction is to claim that and to state it But it's very clear he doesn't believe it in the sense of a faith way or a saving faith way. What is it about them that has them panicking in this way? In another word, authority. 
We are told his teaching shocked them because he taught as one who had authority, not in just a general sense, but an authoritative sense. Satan is the father of lies. He uses deception and false truths and half-truths to work his will in our world and all around us. Jesus is exposing that for what it is, and the authority of his word is making them shudder. Because he's not like the scribes who just simply quote other people. God is in the room. And he is coming to defeat this evil. And that's really the question Mark is wanting us to answer. Can Jesus release captives from the kingdom of Satan? Does he have the power? Does he have the authority? Does he have the credentials? To release those who are in bondage to the kingdom of this world. Which is why John tells us that the Son of Man has come for this purpose. 1 John 3.8 That he might destroy the works of the devil. Our need is at least twofold, dear friends. And we know this to be true. You and I need a sufficient, satisfactory substitute to take our place and atone for our sins. And our great Savior has done that for us. But in His atonement and in His sacrifice for us, that's not all He does because it is through His sacrifice that He does indeed destroy the works of the devil. What does all of this mean for us? How do we apply this text from this Jewish synagogue to our lives today. I think there are numerous applications to Jesus' teaching and His authority and the response of the demons and the response of this crowd. I think there are several applications for us. Let me mention just a few. Number one, it is possible. It is very possible, friends, to know much about Jesus without having faith in Him. It is very possible that you could be here today and you know all of the catechism answers. You have perfect attendance in Sunday school. And you know most of the songs we sing on Sunday. And still not have faith in the Son of God. He knew Him by name. Jesus of Nazareth. He knew where he was from. The demons more than likely, in fact, when you put all of these accounts together, they know quite a bit about Jesus. They are constantly making reference to the various ways we can speak of his deity. The Son of the Most High. The Son of God. The Holy One of God. They know his activity in the area. They know what he is doing. They have all of this to memory. The most knowledgeable person in the synagogue that day was a demon. It wasn't even those who went to worship. And it's very possible that we can trudge through life and have a lot of knowledge, but very little faith in the one we know so much about. That's the great danger, isn't it? It's the great danger as we struggle through life 
Because we so much want answers, so therefore we want more knowledge. And as we get more knowledge to have more answers, we accumulate what we might call spiritual wealth in the fact that we know things. We can speak about God. But have we, by his gracious gift of faith, trusted in him? That's something quite different. That's what the demon could not do and certainly would not do. And yet he had so much knowledge. Putting memes on Facebook about Jesus isn't equivalent to having faith in him. Giving your money to this church, although you should do it, is not equivalent to having faith in our Lord. Doing good works does not equate to you having faith in Him. Certainly these can be evidences of our faith in our Savior. But we must realize, dear friends, the danger of a lot of head knowledge with a cold, dead heart. A second application in this text is another thing that I think is quite clear. You and I must acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare while resting in the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ, who is sovereign and victorious. You and I must acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare. He is coming after you. Your enemy is coming after you. Notice how the Bible gives us this robust perspective of the enemy's angles and intentions in our life. Notice Jesus' analogy in Matthew 13. A sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seed and it fell along the path. And the birds came and they devoured it. And how does Jesus tell us this story? What is the meaning? He actually tells us, doesn't he? He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes. The evil one comes and he snatches it away. What is sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. The evil one has a mission to destroy the preaching or the proclamation of the kingdom message. Why do you think he started convulsing inside of this man? In the synagogue. He may use radio. He may use TV. He may use crying babies or your sports addictions. He may use a thousand things. To pluck the seed away. But in this vivid imagery of the bird to fail swoop down to take away the seed. We have an enemy who has a strategy. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul says that he endeavored eagerly, he says, to go to them again and again. But Satan hindered him. Why? Because he wants to stifle this kingdom message. That's why. It is very possible for supernatural forces of darkness to be present all around us. It was in a worship service in this context. It's all around us. You and I must be aware of spiritual warfare, yet not so defeated by it that we don't realize that our Savior's already won. He's already won. So in this cosmic battle that you and I face, we must first affirm the work of Christ and our identity in Him 
as our sovereign victor. This gives us the courage to fight. Remember in 1 John 4, he says, Little children, you are of God and you have overcome them. For he who is in you, what church, is greater than he who is in the world. Another application, we must submit to a sovereign, authoritative king. You and I are repulsed by false understandings of and false ways people use their authority. We see it in our culture. Every time we hear of sexual harassment, we know that that is an abuse of someone's authority. When there are legitimate police brutality cases, we are seeing an abuse of authority. You and I have seen authority done badly We've seen it done badly on on a national perspective. We've seen it internationally. Poor jobs of authoritarians. You and I are repulsed by that, and we should be. But Jesus doesn't come on the scene in that way and present himself as authoritative. He is completely at home with being authoritative. He's He's completely comfortable with being authoritative to all those who will see and experience him. That is because he does not exploit his power for subversive ends. He is in himself authoritative. We must accept this and submit to it and follow him as our authoritative word. Another application, number four, we cannot underestimate the power of evil while we still keep our eyes on our victorious king. Don't, re- don't miss that this man is completely unable and completely unable to stop the demon from doing what he's doing. In a supernatural warfare, our human strength is limited. Enter Jesus, who in this context and in others is showing his power over supernatural realities. There is a tendency in our lives and in our situations and circumstances to think that you and I can somehow chain evil, compartmentalize evil, somehow structure our society in a way to box it up and push it out, sort of some way to uh, eliminate all vestiges of evil. But you and I, reading our Bible, know that we can't possibly do those things. And yet our Savior through the finished work of resurrecting, of His crucifixion and His resurrection, has declared victory over all supernatural forces. We cannot be unaware of them, but we keep our eyes on the victorious King. Just as a way of, we see this all the time, I was thinking of Paul David Tripp on the way here this morning. Paul David Tripp, I listened to him give a sermon one time, and he's talking to parents, and he was talking to parents in the sense that We must remember, parents, if you're a parent in the room, that all of the external restraints and controls that we put on our children to control their behavior can only go so far because their behavior is being led by their heart. And so long as the heart is not or does not have affections for God, we cannot expect the corresponding behavior to either. And Paul David Tripp, in a sense, is encouraging parents. He's not saying, don't have rules. 
He's saying on the best day, all that we do to try to help our children behave is in a sense useless if we're not first and foremost seeking their salvation through prayer and the witness of our testimonies. Begging God to awaken in them life that they may follow our risen Lord. Another thing, another application is we must live as a herald of this king. Don't miss the part that we sort of read over. The end of this story is them not so much being amazed that the demon has been cast out, but their amazement is at his teaching. Did you catch that? After the demon is expelled, their first response is, oh my gosh, did you see the demon get kicked out? That's not it. Their first response is, this guy is authoritative in his teaching. And they leave there and they go and spread the word of his message. In verse 28, at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region. Whatever happens on Tuesday in our culture, when we decide upon our next president, as Dan mentioned in his prayer earlier, let's be clear that King Jesus will still reign on Wednesday. And you and I have a mission to take his kingdom message with the same passion and excitement as these people are in this text who've just witnessed an exorcism in their worship service. You and I should have the same commitment to expressing and pointing people to our Savior as these people are, and they don't even know nearly what you and I know of Him. The point of this passage is that King Jesus is an authority in and of Himself, and that His teaching and His working of miracles is revealing the ushering in of a new kingdom of which we are a part of by faith. The demon picks a fight with Jesus in the context of a religious worship service. And Jesus takes charge, commanding his departure. This is the message you need to hear today, dear church. Satan's authority is no match for the awesome power and presence of the kingdom of God. While we must take up our spiritual armor, and we must, to wage this spiritual war... We remain resolute that the decisive victory belongs to Jesus. I think of Luther's words as I conclude today. And Luther said, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him, His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fail Him. Jesus has come with authority. Our King has won. May we live in this victory. And may you live in this victory today. Would you pray with me?